It's Canada Day weekend, so it's a great opportunity to pray for our country. So I'm going to pray, uh, pray for our country. Also, uh, we have day camp starting this week, and so we want to pray for uh, everything to go well. Uh, so thankful for our team. We, I think we have 100 plus kids coming, and so uh, we're really hoping for uh, some good work, spiritual work to be done uh, in their lives as well. So let's pray together, and then, uh, and then we'll get to God's Word. Uh, Lord God, we are thankful, so thankful for uh, Canada Day weekend, thankful for the country in which we live, thankful for the many, many blessings that come simply by living here, Lord. We are, we are grateful for the peace that we enjoy. We are grateful, Lord, for, for the beauty of the land in which we live. We're thankful, Lord, for so many uh, structures of government, just so many areas of protection and, and just circumstantial, earthly blessing, Lord, that are helpful in our lives. We're thankful for all of those things. And yet, Lord, we know that our country is a country that is, uh, in general, far from you, Lord, that there are not uh, many people or uh, places, Lord, where we are, they are praising your name this morning. Lord, we know that our country needs you, and so we pray for that. We pray for our leaders, Lord. We pray, God, that you would give them wisdom to lead, but, but Lord, we pray for spiritual renewal, we pray for spiritual renewal throughout our land, Lord, that there be more and more churches with doors open where people can come and hear the truth of God's word, more and more people with uh, the gospel of Jesus on their lips, more and more leaders, more pastors, more church planted. Lord, we love our country, and so we pray the greatest thing we could pray, that they would know Christ and that there would be hope that comes from you. And Lord, in the, same, uh, in the same way, we pray for day camps, Lord. That really is our goal, that we would have a fun time. We're so thankful for, for Sarah and the team, thankful for all the volunteers giving their time and energy. Lord, we pray that it would be a super fun time, very enjoyable, safe. We pray for all those practical things. But really, Lord, we pray that there would be a spiritual renewal in the lives and hearts of the children that come, that they would have an opportunity to hear the message of, of the gospel, and that if they don't know Jesus, they would have an opportunity to respond. We pray for seeds to be planted that in your good time would grow and bear spiritual fruit. So, so thank you for this week and next. We pray indeed that you would work. And I pray for this time that you would work uh, in and through this word by your grace and by your power. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we are going to be in Luke 15. Uh, we have been working through the gospel of Luke and sort of bit by bit today we're in verses 1 to 10. Uh, if you have a Bible, I invite you to open it up. If not, it's okay. The verses will be on the screen. Uh, but if you look at your Bible, you can see that uh, we are going to be dealing with two parables today. Parable of the lost coin, uh, parable of the lost sheep. And so I'd like to begin uh, with not a parable, but a story about something that was lost and then found, because that's what we're going to see this morning. Things that were lost, found, and the great joy at the finding of them. So here's the story. Um, before uh, planting this church, uh, my family and I, we were part of Westside Church, which is in Vancouver, but we were uh, part of the group that planted in North Vancouver. There's a North Shore campus. Uh, on the North Shore, we rented a movie theater, so we didn't have our own building. And so that meant that for baptisms, we would go down to the beach. We'd just do it old school, go down to Ambleside Beach, and we'd baptize in the water. So uh, James Bonney was the pastor then, and one of the times where uh, people, someone was baptized, he baptized a bunch of people, uh, he was walking out of the water, and he said, uh, my wedding ring is gone. And we, we all kind of looked up. He's like hip deep in water still. He's like, it's somewhere in here. Uh, so, you know, what do you say? But, oh, that's, that's too bad that you're in the ocean. We're not going to find that ring probably. Except that uh, someone noticed uh, a team of scuba divers just up the way. 
uh, getting ready to go in the water. And so they, someone went to them. I didn't see them do this. And I looked around, and there were 10 scuba divers entering the water, and they would sweep back and forth where we were baptizing. And we all thought, there's no way they're going to find this little ring. But after 10 minutes of searching, one of the guys stood up. I found it, the ring. Oh, we were so excited. We were high-fiving. We were, it was so amazing. And, you know, what we should have done then is open to Luke 15 and read them these parables because this was exactly the same thing. Maybe they would have come to faith. We didn't do that. But the point is that there is always joy when something that is lost is found and that the Bible uses this to help us understand the fact that there is even greater joy at the realization that we are lost, but then found by God. That's what we're going to see this morning. So, uh, we're going to begin with a bit of context, sort of a setup. We need to know the immediate context of these words we're going to read, and then a bit of historical context. And we get uh, the first bit in the first two verses. So, I'll just read. This is kind of the preamble. Verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So we'll stop there. Uh, if you've been with us, you know that there's been a lot of eating, a lot of banquets, uh, dinner parties, uh, with Jesus kind of being invited. Here it seems like he was the one doing the hosting. right? He's receiving these tax collectors, these sinners. And we have to understand... What is meant by tax collector? Clearly, the, the Pharisees there, they think these guys are the wrong crowd, and, and really they were. Uh, we shouldn't have in our mind, like, CRA employee. That's not the same thing, because uh, it's not just what they did, it's how they did it. These guys, I mean, they collected taxes, but they did it in the most despicable ways possible. They, they cheated, they lied. They stole, they intimidated people with violence just to get as much money out of them as they could. Uh, one of the early uh, church uh, leaders, John Chrysostom, he said this. He said, uh, the tax gatherer is the personification of licensed violence, of legal sin, of specious greed. So he's saying these, these guys are bad news. The best comparison, I think, today would be like probably like a, almost a drug dealer or uh, like organized crime. I mean, people with no morals, no qualms about doing anything they could to get more money. So the interesting thing we see here is that there are two very different responses to these guys. Uh, the religious leaders and then Jesus. Uh, for the religious leaders, I mean, they wanted nothing to do with them. They kept as far away from them as they could. And if you look kind of in the, in the uh, history books, you'll see that the, the scribes and Pharisees, like the, the rabbis at the time, they would not engage with tax collectors at all. They weren't welcome in the synagogue. They didn't teach them or sit down with them or meet with them because they considered themselves to be morally upright people. And so they didn't want to associate. How could they associate with people who are so immoral, so corrupt? You can kind of understand their thinking, but this was actually a, a big mistake. In fact, a misunderstanding of God's love for these people and how they were supposed to react to them. In fact, this was not something new for the Jewish religious leaders. Um, they'd had a history of not really responding to people as, as they should. Um, back in the Old Testament, we see this in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 34, verses 1 and 4, we have some very strong words from God to the, the leaders at the time. Uh, they're called, he calls them shepherds. Here's Ezekiel 34, 
Verse one, the word of the Lord came to me, says Ezekiel, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds, the leaders of Israel, prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So he's basically saying, look, priests, shepherds, you're, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're not caring for the spiritually sick, for the morally lost. You're being harsh with them. You're being cold with them. And if you keep reading through Ezekiel, uh, there's a lot more words of judgment from God. And then finally, God just says, okay, look, I'm just going to do it myself. Uh, Ezekiel 34, 11, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep. And will seek them out. As the shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep, then have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. So you can imagine God's people at the time hearing this, and they probably would have been pretty pretty stoked. Like this is saying God, the God who made the heavens and the earth, is going to be their shepherd. He's going to, to connect with them, going to reach them. They would have been very excited, but they also probably would have been thinking, I wonder what that would look like. Like, what would it look like for the God of the universe to actually shepherd us, to reach out to to us? And here in our passage, uh, we have the answer. This is what it looks like. It looks like dinner parties where Jesus is chatting up the worst people in town. It looks like the Son of God sharing a meal with sinners, and he's doing it out of love for those people, but also he's doing it to confront the religious leaders on what the heart of God for sinners actually looks like. Like the right way to respond to those who are morally corrupt. And to make this very, very clear, Jesus tells uh, a few parables. So we're going to look at two of them today and then one next week. Today, the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. I'm going to read them all the way through and then we'll unpack them, okay? So here's verse 3. So Jesus told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance." Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that was lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So two stories, lost and found. We're going to work through uh, three points. To guide our time, kids, you can write these down on your sheets. First one. First point, we are all lost. That's point number one. We are all lost. Clearly, that's at the beginning of both of these parables, the sense of lostness, lost sheep, lost coins. But really, this is talking about human beings because that's what parables are. They're they're stories that have a deeper meaning. And so it's not just talking about sheep and coins. It's talking about us. We are lost. Now, the idea of being lost... Um, that human beings are lost is not unique to a Christian worldview. 
It's actually pretty common, right? You hear people say things like, I feel lost, or so-and-so is kind of lost right now. There are different stages of life where we are more prone to feeling this way, right? Young adults tend to sometimes feel a bit lost, not sure what to do. After high school, you know, do I do this or that? Sometimes we say, you know, Jimmy's been a bit lost. He has been aimless, trying to figure out his direction in life. He can't find it. Same thing with midlife crises, That's really a sense of lostness. We've achieved everything that we thought we would or close to it, and yet we still feel disappointed. There's a sense of of like, what is life actually about? That happens for us as as human beings. We kind of understand that sense of lostness. But here in the text, it's not really just talking about that idea of lostness. It's, It's speaking to us about what it means to be lost in sin. And we know this because at the end of each parable, Uh, it says this. Well, here's one of them, verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So that's what this is really about. Someone lost in sin, who is then found by God, comes to to have peace with God, salvation. So taken together, these two parables give us a pretty clear picture of what it means for a human being to be lost in sin, meaning meaning, uh, have their backs turned to God. Not, not following God, not obeying God. So the sheep, for example, is lost in the wilderness. Uh, this is instructive for us in terms of understanding what it means for us to be lost. Now, wilderness here, I don't think we should picture uh, like the British Columbian wilderness, like a sheep you know, wandering around in the Fraser Valley lost because you know, we live, as we know, in a temperate rainforest, which rains all summer, apparently, all the time. And so there's a lot of green things. If there was a sheep lost somewhere in BC, it would probably be able to eat and feast. It would be fine. But that's not what it's like in the Middle Eastern wilderness. I, I found a picture. I just Googled Middle Eastern wilderness, and this is what I came up with. Uh, it is a harsh environment. No water, no food, animals prowling around, hot sun. So any plump little cute sheep in this environment is in trouble. Right? Desperate trouble. That's what we should have in our minds with the sheep who is lost. And we should also come to understand that this is talking about us. In our sin, apart from God, we are also in a desperate situation. First and foremost, because the consequences of sin is eternal death, but also because the world in which we live, even though it seems like it has everything that we need to sustain life, The life that it gives is is of a very temporary nature, an unsatisfying nature. I mean, if you think about the things that we look to, to to flourish in life, right? The things that we, the entertainments we pursue, the joys we pursue, the loves we pursue, the, the purpose in our lives, it's not that they're not those things, it's just that they're not really ultimately satisfying. The truth of the matter is that we live in a wasteland. We're nothing to really nourish us. Uh, think about us walking through that, you know, that wilderness that we just saw a picture of with a bag. And in that bag, all we have is like a bunch of gummy bears and donuts and Mountain Dew. For the first little while, we'd be like, this is all right. Okay, this is great. It tastes good, feels good. But after a week of eating and drinking only those things, our body would be crying out for nourishment. Please, a carrot, please, water, something to actually nourish my body. That's, that's physically what we would feel. That's also what is true of us in this world in all the other areas, relationally, spiritually, morally, that even though there's a lot of things that we can give ourselves to, we we actually end up crying out for, for something genuine, genuine hope, genuine joy, genuine purpose. 
So it's no wonder that we feel lost at different stages of our lives. We are actually lost. Even though around it seems like there's an abundance of life, we are lost spiritually. We have no clear direction or purpose. That's part of what it means to be lost in sin. The coin gives us some added insight. Because with the coin, you have this picture of something that's, that's tarnished, right? These, uh, you can imagine those coins back then, they would have been grimy and dirty, passed around, uh, a lot of dust and dirt. And this coin is, is lost somewhere on the dirt floor, maybe stone floor of this, of this home. And that also is a picture of us in our sin. We're, we're morally corrupt, stained, stuck in some dark place with no way to get out. Now, interestingly... Uh, the coin is still valuable. I mean, that's why she's looking for it, right? There's some value. It's just that it's useless when you can't find it. And that's a pretty good picture of us in our sin. We're morally corrupt, morally stained, of value to God because we're made in his image, but we're useless. We're useless to give God any glory. We're useless to bring any real joy into our lives because we are, we are stuck in the darkness of our sin and disobedience. Now, some of us don't love these kinds of descriptions about human beings. Uh, if, if maybe you've been with the church before and that kind of irks you, perhaps. This, this idea that the church always talks about human beings as ultimately, uh, not ultimately, but originally sinful. Uh, that, that we are lost, broken, uh, helpless, those kinds of things. You feel like that doesn't, that doesn't feel like me, which I get. Because it's true, it doesn't feel like that a lot of the time. But what we need to recognize is there's a lots of times in our lives where our feelings and the reality of our situation don't match up. So for example, uh, there's a lot of doctor's offices where someone is sitting across from the doctor and they feel okay. I mean, they went into the doctor, they had some pain, they had some discomfort, the doctor's done some tests, uh, but on that day they feel okay. But the doctor is telling them that it's very serious. And everything in them wants to not hear that. They want to say, look, doc, I, look, I know I felt not great last week. I feel pretty good right now. I mean, I don't know what's on your sheet, but I, I, feel, I feel pretty healthy right now. I don't really want to hear this, this terminal prognosis, this serious prognosis. And think about it from the doctor's point of view. What are they going to do? Are they going to say, oh, you feel okay? Well, then look, I mean, these blood results, these oncology results, let's just forget those. You go and live your life. You feel good? Go and live your life. That's great. No doctor would say that because it's unprofessional, unloving, unkind. They, they would say, look, I know you feel fine, but look at, we can do more tests, but they're going to say the same thing. We need to do treatment. We need to take this seriously because the reality of your situation is that you need help. So look, we can believe whatever we want, okay? You can believe and live however you want to live. But if you want to know what God says about us as human beings, it's pretty clear. Hey, not just from these parables, but all over the Bible, all over our world, things are not right. We are not right. We are lost in our sin. 1 John 1.8 says it as clearly as any other part of the Bible. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Whether we want to see it, whether we're comfortable seeing it or not, this is, this is the reality. And Jesus makes it very clear. We, we are lost. We need help. And the next thing he makes clear is that he is the one to bring us that help. So number one, uh, we're all lost. Uh, number two, God searches for us. So the man, 
The man noticing the missing sheep immediately goes looking. The woman noticing the missing coin instantly starts searching. It's the perfect picture of, of God's response to us in our sin. Now I get it. Listen, I know for a lot of you, these parables are so familiar that they feel, you know, they feel a bit tired. They feel a bit worn, right? I mean, even for you kids, you probably have heard these 12 times already just being in Sunday school for how long you have. We know what happens. We know what happens to lost sheep. The shepherd goes and gets them. We know what happens to lost coins. Of course, they go and find them. This is, this is something we know already. It's easy to pass this by. But it's helpful for us to think about what it would have been like for the people hearing this for the first time. Not just because they heard it for the first time, but because the whole idea being communicated here is revolutionary. Okay, not that shepherds go find sheep or people look for coins, that is obvious. But what it's pointing to, because what it's pointing to is the idea that God would come looking for us in our sin. See, up to this point, uh, peace with God only came with a lot of effort. Keeping the law, making sacrifices, repenting of sin. That's things that people had to do. God was still gracious, like he was a gracious God, but it seemed really clear the only people who would find peace with God were those that went looking for God. You still see this to this day. I mean, most of the major world religions involve some, some kinds of rule keeping, right? Islam, Judaism to this day, here are the rules, follow all these things, work hard, and then you might find some favor with God. You might get some peace with God. You might have some hope of eternal whatever. But, but even, even the other kinds of spirituality or quasi-spirituality, you see people, they go on treks all the time, right? Treks to the Andes, they walk the Appalachian Way, they travel to see giant Buddhas or sacred temples, they aren't all looking for the Christian God. They're just looking for some sense of connection with the divine, some sense of, of peace. A lot of people uh, don't even have to go anywhere. You hear people talk and say, look, I'm really trying to find myself. I'm trying to sp spend time with myself, whatever that may look like, walks, times of study, meditation, uh, self-reflection, what, whatever it is. The common thread in all of these things is that they're human beings are looking for a sense of peace and they feel like they're not going to find it unless they go and look for it. That that is the answer. To search, to, to, to figure this out for themselves. So seen in that light, these parables are still revolutionary because they say the exact opposite. They say the fundamental answer to our lostness is not that we go searching for God or anything else, but that he is searching for us already. The shepherd scrambles over the hills into the ravines looking for the lost sheep. The woman lights a lamp, sweeps the floor, searches diligently until she finds the coin. This is God's response to us in the lostness of our sin. It sounds simple. It may be something we've heard many times before, but it is a profound theological truth about the nature of God and the nature of our salvation. So the nature of God, let's take that first. What does this tell us? Well, very clearly it tells us that God loves us. God's for us. You know that one being loves another being if they go to help them when they need help. For example, in our home, we have a cat, okay? I'm gonna show you a picture because who doesn't like cat pictures? This is Georgia. This is what she does, right? Everyone loves her. Um, 
But the truth of the matter is that in the Glezos home, uh, there are different levels of love for Georgia, depending on who you are, okay? And we know this because uh, while Georgia is an indoor cat, she likes to escape, especially now when it's nice out, probably six or seven times a day, you will hear in our house, Georgia's out, Georgia got out. And the response from the different members of the family will tell you how much they love Georgia. Some of the Glezos family will immediately jump up, run outside, where's Georgia? Quick, we gotta find her, run all over the house, neighborhood, get her, oh, she's safe. Other members, I won't say who, this is their response. Oh yeah? Hmm. (laughs) And they do nothing. They are cold hearted. And you can tell that they have no love for poor Georgia, okay? That is, that is the, that's the nature of someone. If you actually do anything to help someone else, it communicates a sense of, of love. This is what we see, God's heart for us, even in the stubbornness, the disobedience, the disrespect of our sin. Jesus didn't stay in heaven. He came down. He pursues us. The Spirit of God pursues us at all times. It communicates the abundant love of God. And as a bit of a side note, just for parents, we don't have time to get into it all the way, but parents, we should know this is how a godly parent treats his children in their sin. That, that, that in our children, when they are disobedient, when they are acting this way, that our hearts for them should be still full of love. That we should make sure that our children see us pursuing them. Still with the discipline, with boundaries, all those things. But our children should never have the idea that they can do something that will sever our love, that we will stop pursuing them. This is how God treats us. This, this parable is a picture of his love for us. But it doesn't just tell us about the nature of God, it also tells us about the nature of our salvation. Because we don't find God, he finds us. Right? Think about that for a minute. That means every human being who has ever followed God, become a Christian, person of faith, they didn't find God themselves. Right? Billy Graham, Elizabeth Elliot, all the heroes of faith. It was God who found them first. Which can be a bit confusing because it seems in the Bible like there's a pretty clear emphasis that we need to decide uh, if we believe in Jesus, which is true. I mean, look, here's some verses. Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Clearly, there are some things that we need to believe, that our faith is necessary for our salvation, and we're the ones who do the believing, which is why we say things like, I I came to faith. If we're telling our story, right, I came to faith. I committed my life to Christ. I became a believer. I found God. We say these things, and, and they are true statements. But the question we should be asking is what was God doing up to that point in our lives? Like, was he just sitting on his hands, hoping that we would find him? Was he completely inactive, waiting for us to believe so then he could unleash his power into our lives? No. He was, he was active the whole time. Clearly, we were the ones who were lost, not God. We were the ones who were weak, not God. We were the ones who were in a desperate situation. He came searching for us. It may seem like we come to a sudden realization about who Jesus is after a season of questioning and and searching. But what we see here is that even before the searching began, God was at work. The Spirit of God is the one who, who opens our minds and our heart to even wrestle with sin, to have a sense that we are lost. Faith itself 
is actually a gift from God. In the book of Ephesians, you can see this very, very clearly. Read through Ephesians chapter two. It begins by saying we were dead in our sin. And then it says, but God made us alive in Christ. And then in verses eight and nine, it says this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this faith is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. So our salvation is and has always been in the hands of God. Uh, philosopher Blaise Pascal imagines God saying it like this. You would not be searching for me had I not been searching for you. So this is so essential for us in terms of understanding the hope of the gospel, the hope of, of the Bible, the Christian faith. Because peace doesn't come from finding ourselves. It doesn't come from, from finding God or, or coming to some reali spiritual realization it doesn't even come from us, our ability to search for Jesus. It comes because we are lost and we need to be found and praise Jesus. That's exactly what he came to do. In Luke 19, he's going to visit with another notorious sinner, Zacchaeus, who had taken money from people all over town. Zacchaeus comes to faith. And what does Jesus say? What does he say in verse 10? He says, for the son of man, that's him. For I, he's saying, I came to seek and save the lost. He's saying this man was lost. And I came to him, no one else did, because my heart, my love is abundant. This is such good news. This is the answer that we need. This is the hope of the gospel. But I think the question we might be asking is, okay, if, if this is true, then why are so many of us still lost? Like, why are we still searching? Well, the truth is that a lot of, a lot of people in our world, they don't know they're lost. They don't have any sense of sin, and so they're just living their lives Right? Drinking the Mountain Dew and the candy and feeling okay for a time. They can't see it. They're, they're willingly blind to it. Uh, others of us uh, just find it hard to believe that anyone would want to find us. We just, don't, we just don't believe the abundant love of God. And so we can't, it's hard to receive it. But there are some of us who would rather find our own way. Have you seen this in a park? Right? There's a parent looking for a lost child. And you're like, oh no, the child's lost. And then you realize the child has been lost on purpose. They're like hiding behind the slide or in the bushes. And the parents find them and then pick them up. And they're kicking and screaming, I don't want to go home. It's not where I want to go. I want to stay lost in the forest forever. And they're, why are you, why are you so mean to me, mom or dad? Right? They're fighting and kicking. Now think about it from the parent's point of view. What do they do? You, you don't see many parents put their child back down and say, okay, Timmy, go Play in the forest for as long as you want. Listen, just so you know, our house is about 30 minutes northwest. So when you want, come and find us. Uh, we'd love to have you, but we don't want to, you know, sort of cramp your style, whatever you want. You don't say that because, you know, you get arrested as a parent. But because there's no love in that, what does the parent do? Wrestles the child to the minivan, opens the door, puts them in the car seat, duct tapes them, shuts the door, and drives home because they love the child. They love them. They're not going to allow them to be lost. Look, God treats us the same way. In grace, in love, in patience, he endures our sin, our kicking and screaming until the day when finally our hearts are truly broken. Where we truly see our lostness for what it is. And finally, by the power of the Spirit of God, we, we turn into the arms of our shepherd. And we hold on tight as he is already carrying us home. Look, I know, I know some of you here have people in your lives 
that have been willingly lost for a long time. They've been running. Maybe you've been, maybe you've been running. You should take heart to know that, that God knows his sheep. He knows who are lost. And he will keep pursuing them in grace and love until they are found. Jesus says this in John 10, verse 27. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. See, if you know someone who is running, you can take heart in knowing that, that Jesus will keep pursuing them. And that if they are one of his children, they will be saved. They will be found in the end. So we are lost. God searches for us. And the third thing we see here in these parables, in both of them, is that we are found with joy. So the final images of both stories are filled with joy. Like joy on earth and heaven. And I think we have some sense of what this kind of joy looks like. Celebration. There's lots of examples of this. One recently... Uh, which we didn't really experience here, but I think we heard about it, was uh, Queen Elizabeth's Platinum Jubilee, 70 years on the throne. Uh, they went all out in the UK. So here's some pictures of the kind of parades they had. This is, I mean, top-level celebration. Look at all that bunting. Look at all those flags. People were excited. They had a four-day weekend. So legislated by the government, Friday and Monday off. I didn't know this. We are a Commonwealth country, are we not? I don't remember getting a four-day weekend. But the whole of the UK was excited. They had horse derbies. They had um, platinum parties at the palace. They had concerts. And they had a Jubilee lunch, which I think is fantastic. It was basically block parties all over England. 60,000 people came together and had these celebration block parties. And I'm not sure, but that looks like the queen who is there in... Doesn't it look like her there? Anyway, I don't think it's actually her. But you can see the joy on his face. Look at how happy he is. This is real celebration. We know this kind of celebration. All the time when our team wins something, when someone in our family gets married, or has a baby, we, we celebrate. And it's a good thing. But we must understand that all of these celebrations pale in comparison to what's being described here. I mean, the queen's on the throne seven years. Fantastic. God has been on the throne forever. And what's happening here in these parables, someone is being found. That means that there is glory for the God who has reigned forever because his salvation is being applied to the heart of one of his children. And that means that now they will live forever. This is glory and celebration and rejoicing beyond anything that we can imagine. But our hearts, our hearts should be stirred. If you're part of the church, this should be the thing that gets us most excited. And we see this. I mean, we've experienced this last week. A woman named Shadi was baptized. That was a time of celebration. She was lost and then found, and baptism is saying, look, Jesus, you're my everything now. You've saved me. And we as a church, we celebrated that, and rightly so. This is something that should mark us, if you're a believer, that while we celebrate many things, nothing should be so close to our heart as, as, as rejoicing when someone is saved. So I want to I close with one story about, about this. Because I came across it as I was reading and studying, and it, it made me excited. So this comes from Bayview Church in Toronto. This is an Iranian congregation. Uh, the pastor at the time, Sam Nasser, he was preaching in the summer of 2004. Uh, so he's preaching in Farsi, and uh, during his sermon, he noticed that there's a woman in the, in the crowd there, and she's on her phone. 
And it seems, you know, it's a little bit unnerving, right? Someone's on, on your phone. And so, it, he, but he didn't say anything. He thought maybe there's an emergency of some kind. But the next week, she's there and she's on her phone again. <laughs> He's like, what is going on? So he, he meets with her that week. He asks her to come in and he just says, you know, can you help me to understand? Like, why are you on your phone during the sermon? And she says, oh, pastor, I told you. My husband back in, in Iran, he, he is very interested to know what you've been saying that makes me want to be a Christian, that I have come to believe in Jesus. So I got a calling card and every Sunday I call him and he puts you on speakerphone and my mother and my sister and other people are coming and they're listening to you. He's like, oh, that's great. So next, next week he puts her up front with the phone. So, and week after week, he's, he's preaching and preaching and one Sunday... He's sharing the gospel, the love of God for his children. And he says, he says, look, is there anyone here who would like to receive Jesus? And the woman stands up. She says, my husband, my husband wants to receive Jesus. And my mother and my sister and everyone, you know, doesn't get it. So they're like, what does this woman say? But he explains, everyone erupts in joy, in joy that the gospel went forth, that they responded in faith and another person had been found. That that is the thing that should excite us. That's what's being told here because the man says to his friends, rejoice with me. The woman says, friends, rejoice with me. What lost is now found. And it's found because we see, this is the key, we see that we need to be found. Right? In verse seven, if you look, there's a group of people who don't have joy. They are those who don't need repentance, it says. But actually what it means is they don't think they need to repent. And they're the ones who are left without joy. The only ones who truly have joy are the ones who see, yes, I, I am lost without you, Jesus. I need you. I'm so thankful that you left heaven. You pursued me through all of my life to this point, and I see that without you, I will be dead in my sin, but with you, I will be alive forever. So we're going to go into a response time in just a moment, and, and I would invite you, just like Pastor Sam Nasser did, if, if you don't yet know Jesus, if you've not yet received him as your savior and Lord, today would be the day to do it. And we're gonna have people on either side. We do this each week, we pray, but I just invite you to come up. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to help you to know Jesus truly and be found by him. But I would also say, uh, if there's other people in your life that, that are lost and maybe even praying for them, come up. We'd love to pray for you with, um, for that as well. But let's pray together and then we'll transition into a time of response. Lord Jesus, we are thankful, so thankful that you, you loved us so much that even though we were running away from you in our sin, uh, you pursued us. Jesus, you've kept pursuing us. For some of us, you're, you've been pursuing us up until this day, and I pray that your spirit would, would bring the clarity that we need to see that without you, we will always be lost. Even though there's, there's tastes and pleasures of this life, things to distract us, there will be no peace in the end apart from you. And so I pray for us. I pray for everyone here, everyone listening in, tuning in, Lord, that you would do a profound spiritual work in our lives today. That for those who don't have faith, that we would come to faith. That we would, we would see our need. That we would repent and turn from our sin. And Lord, for those of us who do have faith, may you encourage us to know that we are in your hands, that, that we can't sin our way out of your hands, we can't run far enough away from you, that you love us, you will keep pursuing us. And the people in our lives, Lord, that weigh in our heart, I pray we would know that their salvation has been and always will be in your hands. And so we can, we can rest in that. Help us to be diligent in prayer, 
diligent in, in loving them and sharing with them, but Lord, to know that it's ultimately you who saves. And we praise you for it. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.